When you walk through the cathedral's main door and head inside, you'll enter a living monument to the wealth and piety of the Holy Roman Empire. And you will have had a grand entrance. Until relatively recently, the Giant's Gate was only used on special occasions, such as Napoleon's farewell proclamation in 1805. You may recall from my Michaelerplatz episode that men and women used to enter churches through separate side doors and stay segregated inside of the church. Men on the right, in this case through St. Stephen's Singertor, or Singer's Gate, and women on the left through its Bischofstor, Bishop's Gate. Small foyers were added to the exterior of these two entrances in the 16th century. The one on your left now houses the cathedral's gift shop. In fact, especially if there's not too much of a crowd, it's worth poking your head into the shop momentarily to see the 14th century tympanum over the bishop's gate, depicting the death and heavenly crowning of the Virgin Mary, surrounded by an assortment of female saints, deliberate references to this entrance and the cathedral's north aisle being designated women's areas. Set off to the lower left of the tympanum, you'll see Duke Rudolph IV, nicknamed Rudolph the Founder, holding a model of St. Stephen's that reflects his Gothic renovations to the church in the early 1350s. Across from Rudolph is his wife, Catherine of Bohemia, whose father, Holy Roman Emperor Charles IV, built Prague's Charles Bridge, founded Charles University, renovated St. Vitus Cathedral, and expanded Prague's castle complex. In fact, historians believe that Rudolph was motivated, at least in part, by a competitive drive to outdo his father-in-law, which also compelled him to establish a stable local currency, invest heavily in the modernization of the city's infrastructure, found the University of Vienna in 1365, and even invent the term Archduke through forged paperwork in order to give himself a promotion to the level of authority equivalent to the prince-electors of the Holy Roman Empire. All of this before his early death at the age of just 25. In case you were wondering, this is why this odd title of Archduke is only found in the House of Habsburg. It was completely invented as a power grab through a document called the Privilegio Maius in 1358, which Rudolf ordered to be forged, then claimed to have found, which Rudolf ordered to be forged, then claimed to have found, and mandating that his territory was inseparable, his title inherited through primogeniture, and importantly, his rule independent of the authority of the emperor. The emperor at the time was Rudolf's father-in-law, who naturally refused to acknowledge the document's authenticity. But judging from the power and influence of the Habsburg name in the ensuing centuries, it ultimately proved a very successful ruse. In fact, it wasn't until the mid-19th century, well after the dissolution of the Holy Roman Empire, that a historian proved it to be a fake. One more point of interest in this little alcove Embedded in the doorframe on your left side, if you're still facing the Bishop's Gate tympanum, you'll see a square brass plaque around a stone worn clean and white in the center from centuries of pilgrims touching and kissing it. This is the Kolomanistein, the St. Koloman stone, a secondary relic from Austria's first patron saint. Originally from Ireland, Koloman was an early 10th century pilgrim who, while on his way to the Holy Land, was stopped in the nearby village of Stockerau by a group of locals who thought that his foreign appearance meant that he must be a spy. They hung him from a dead elder tree and left his body unburied. But as time passed and his body showed no signs of decomposition, they also began to notice other miracles. For one thing, the dead tree came back to life. Supposedly, it still got living branches more than a thousand years later. You can actually go and visit it. His hair and nails continued to grow, 
and people who came into contact with his body were miraculously healed. His remains were disassembled and, to quote the Latin script that runs around this plaque, this is the stone on which the blood from the sawing of the bones of the martyr St. Coloman was poured, which the illustrious Lord Rudolph IV had placed here in 1461. Behind the stone, there used to be a lead box containing some of these bones, as well as other related relics and a parchment attesting their authenticity. The stone itself is believed to bring luck to those who touch it, especially, rather ironically, to foreign travelers. One last point of interest before we leave this little alcove, the sketches visible partway up the wall. Discovered only in 2019 by a team of restorers, this mural of a three-paneled winged altar may be a lost work by the German Renaissance master Albrecht Dürer. He worked in virtually every medium, sculpture, bronze, printmaking, painting, wood carving, and it is known that he traveled from his home in Nuremberg to Italy and back twice between 1495 and 1507. But it has never been established by scholars whether Dürer ever made it to Vienna. Because Dürer experts agree that this mural of Saints Catherine and Margaret carries all of the characteristic features that indicate it to have been executed by his own hand, a new chapter may need to be written on the life and travels of this Northern Renaissance master. Heading back into the main entry area, immediately to your right as you exit the cathedral shop, you'll see another of Rudolph's initiatives, a small chapel that has had a number of different names since its initial construction in the mid-14th century. Originally named for the 12th century Swiss saint Morandus, today it's known as the Prince Eugene Chapel in reference to his remains being moved here in the 18th century. You'll recall Prince Eugene from the Heroes Square episode. He was the military commander responsible for defending Vienna from the Second Turkish Siege in 1683 and is depicted on horseback in front of the Hofburg, with the horse's tail touching the statue's base. But for quite some time in between, this chapel was called the Kreuzkapelle, the Chapel of the Cross, in reference to its striking black crucifix featuring a bearded Christ with real hair. It's unknown where the hair originally came from, probably the cross's late Gothic-era maker, but it was long believed to have been grown by the Christ figure itself. Because the crucifix was hung quite high on the wall, higher than cleaners could reach during normal cleanings, it collected cobwebs that, over time, lent the appearance that the hair had continued to grow. These cobwebs would be intermittently cleared away when the church underwent more thorough cleanings, which led to the crucifix's nickname, Christus mit dem gestützten Bart, or Christ with the trimmed beard. You've heard the term Gothic a fair bit at this point. In reference to this crucifix, some of Austria's first ruling family, the Babenbergs, and various architectural features. And you may remember that it's the period directly following the Romanesque, during which most of Stefan's dome's visible structure was completed. But you may be wondering, in practical terms, what distinguishes the Gothic period from what came before and after it. Simply put, the pointed arch. Long a common feature in the Islamic world, the pointed arch began its migration into Western European architecture during the 11th and 12th centuries in the wake of the Crusades. Because an arch with a point can support more structural weight, walls don't need to be as thick. The width of windows and interior spaces exploded in the Gothic period. Vaulted ceilings and towers shot skyward, and decorative elements drew the viewer's attention to the sense of height and lightness made possible by this innovation. 
It was during this transition from the Romanesque to the Gothic that the biblical stories, previously depicted in wall frescoes for the mostly illiterate congregation, moved to the new medium of stained glass. Because it was renovated multiple times between 1147 and the early 16th century, St. Stephen's gives a rare visual progression from Romanesque at the Giant's Gate through two phases of Gothic construction still visible today. From your current perspective near the main entrance, let your eye wander up to the ceiling following the rib vaults to the east end of the church in the Albertine choir that forms the space around the altar. You may notice a stylistic difference between the vaulting at the other end of the church, assuming you can see that far, and the vaulting directly above you. Specifically, the Albertine choir has a simple four-part rib vaulting with decorative boss stones at its intersections. This structure dates to the first half of the 14th century. About 20 years later, Rudolph had the main nave and area you're standing now remodeled, by which time vaulting had grown more flamboyant. As you can see directly above you, this period witnessed ribs being multiplied, manipulated into ornate patterns, and even used purely decoratively. So where does architecture go from here? By the time Rudolph's renovations were completed in 1359, most of Europe was over the Gothic style. It had never been particularly popular in Italy, where artists and architects were beginning to take a second look at the ancient Roman ruins all around them and delve into the classical Greek forms from which they'd been derived. This was the beginning of the Renaissance, a style that spread first to France through the familial connection between the Medicis and Florence and the French court, and from there to the rest of the continent. It arrived in Austria relatively late, and by the time it got here, the Baroque was hot on its heels. As a consequence, Vienna only has a handful of Renaissance-style structures. One of the few is the Stahlburg, a former imperial palace that now serves as the stables for the horses of the Spanish riding school. Before we head into the north aisle of the nave, I'll just point out a couple remaining curiosities on this side of the large black iron partition. The singer's gate, the male counterpart to the bishop's gate, which we've already seen, is unfortunately inaccessible to visitors today. But just to the right of the door, under an ornate late Gothic baldachin, you'll see an icon of the Virgin Mary with the Christ child. This is called the icon of Mary of Pütsch, named for a city in Hungary where dozens say they witnessed the painting shedding real tears in 1696 during the precarious final years of the Great Turkish War. Emperor Leopold I ordered the painting to be brought to Vienna. It was then carried into the Battle of Zenta in modern-day Serbia and credited for the Austrian victory there. It has remained in Vienna ever since, so a copy was made to replace the one taken from Pütsch, which in 1715 and 1905 was also observed weeping. Directly to the right of the Pütsch Madonna, tucked into the cathedral's southwest corner, you'll see the door to a small side chapel called the Elegiuskapelle. Actually, church documents long referred to this chapel as the Copulationskapelle, or Copulation Chapel, since copulation was, at that time, a synonym for marriage. According to the church register, on August 4, 1782, a wedding ceremony took place here between Constanze Weber and Wolfgang Adam Mozart. His name was entered incorrectly by a church official. I bet that was the last time that happened. After marrying here, without their parents' consent, by the way, Mozart and his new bride developed a close relationship with the St. Stephen's Parish. Two of their six children were baptized here, 
and shortly before his death in 1791, the composer was appointed as adjunct Kapellmeister, second in command over the more than 40 musicians in the cathedral's regular employ. This time, of course, his signature includes the correct spelling of all of his names, all five of them, along with a dose of his characteristic swagger. When Mozart signed his name, Johannes Chrysostomus Wolfgangus Theophilus Mozart, Kapellmeister und wirklicher Kammerkompositeur, he not only dropped the adjunct from his title, giving himself a promotion to full Kapellmeister, he also included what could be seen as a little jab at his artistic rival, Antonio Salieri. While Mozart had been appointed to the office of Imperial Royal Court Composer by Emperor Joseph II in 1787, his actual responsibilities only included the composition of music for the balls and carnival dances thrown at the Hofburg Palace. For this, he was paid 800 gulden a year, a mere two-thirds of the 1,200 gulden a year salary that Salieri was paid for the promotion he had simultaneously received from that same position to that of Hofkapellmeister. This appointment made Salieri responsible for choosing, not composing, what was played at court and in the imperial chapel meaning that Mozart's compositions were largely subject to Salieri's discretion. When Mozart describes himself as wirklicher Kammerkompositeur, or real or true court composer, in the parish records, he's underlining the fact that he still composes, and leaving little doubt as to his feelings about Salieri's authority. Only three years later, of course, at the age of just 35, Mozart died of a Hitziges Frieselfieber, or severe miliary fever, a now antiquated medical term for a fever accompanied by a rash of millet grain-sized red bumps. The day after his death, Mozart's body was brought from his home just down the street, in a building that used to stand at what is now the backside of Kärtnerstrasse No. 19, into St. Stephen's, where his funeral rites were read. Then, after sunset, in accordance with the laws of the day, his corpse was transported to the St. Mark's Cemetery and placed in an unmarked grave large enough to accommodate several bodies. A number of other famous musicians and composers also appear on the rosters of past parishioners of this church. These include Antonio Vivaldi, Christoph Willibald Gluck, Antonio Salieri, and Franz Schubert, whose burial details are also recorded here. Let's now continue into the northern aisle of the basilica by heading through the opening in the Black Iron Gate. You can buy a ticket to access the rest of the nave if you wish. It costs only a few euros, and it will allow you to get a closer look at a handful of the cathedral's attractions. But in the interest of keeping this tour completely cost-free, most of what I'll point out can be seen by cleverly positioning yourself in the north aisle. Bear in mind that the gate will be closed to all sightseeing if a mass or prayer service is going on, so if you're turned away, just come back at a later time. As you enter the northern aisle of the basilica through the Black Iron Gate, passing the ticket desk, look to your right. At the base of the massive roof support pillar, you'll notice a wrought iron partition surrounding a large, intricately carved pulpit. This finely detailed late Gothic masterpiece, completed in 1515, is where the celebrant would stand to deliver the sermon, the only portion of the Mass spoken in the local language. Metaphorically speaking, this part of the Mass represents a meeting point between heaven and earth, through the channel of the priest. This is when divine will is communicated to the mortal world, which the pulpit's creator represents symbolically on the stairway. If you look closely at the tracery wheels that support the stairs railing, you'll notice that they alternate between three and four spokes. 
the three-spoke wheels spinning clockwise down from the pulpit, the four-spoke wheels spinning counterclockwise up from the floor. Three and four have specific significance in Catholic numerology, three representing the Holy Trinity, God's gifts to Israel, and nearly every aspect of the Passion of Christ, the number of crosses at Calvary, times Christ prayed, times he was denied by Peter, days he was in the tomb, among many others. The New Testament has 27 books, which is three to the power of three. Four, however, connotes the earth. There are four seasons, four cardinal directions, four evangelists, four ages of man, four humors. Add the two numbers, and you have the biblical number that represents the intersection of the earthly with the divine. Seven days of creation, seven sacraments, seven beatitudes, seven virtues, seven deadly sins, seven words spoken by Christ on the cross. By the way, this kind of numerology is embedded throughout the rest of the church as well. The value on which the dimensions of the entire church is based is 37, a 3 and a 7. 3 times 37 is 111, another representation of the 3 and 1 nature of the Holy Trinity, and the width of the nave in medieval feet. Adding the transept chapels, the total width doubles to 222 medieval feet. The length of the nave is triple its width at 333 medieval feet. The taller south tower is 444 medieval feet tall, also believed to be the length of Noah's Ark. Add the length of the nave to the height of the tower, and it yields 777, three sevens. By the way, you might remember from the episode on Stefan Stone's exterior that there are 343 steps to the top of the south tower. 343 is seven to the third power. More on numerology embedded in the cathedral in a bit, but for right now, coming back to the pulpit, there's symbology in the animals carved along the railing too. In addition to the Hündchen ohne Furcht, the fearless dog, protecting the priest from any dangers that might skitter up from below, a battle of good and evil is playing out along the banister, between the light-seeking lizards and amphibians, representing the search for the divine, and the nocturnal frogs and toads, that represent evil. If you paid for admission to the nave, or can manage to position yourself to see the main pedestal of the pulpit, which might involve going back out through the black gate to get the right angle, you'll see four large busts carved into the base depicting the fathers of the Roman Catholic Church. From left to right, Saints Augustine, Gregory, Jerome, and Ambrose. Twenty-nine smaller figures integrated into the pedestal's ornate filigree represent the apostles and various saints. Remarkably, the entire pulpit consists of just three large blocks of lime sandstone fitted together then fastidiously carved. Depending on where you're standing, you may also be able to see a much larger bust tucked behind the pulpit's base under its stairs. This figure, called the Fenstergucke, or window peeper, is a self-portrait of the pulpit's sculptor. The simple act of including a self-portrait, a sort of personal signature claiming responsibility for this creation, represents the shift from the Gothic tradition of anonymous artwork meant for the glorification of God to the Renaissance concept of the importance of the individual. But it wasn't the first time. If you walk over to the nearest wall along the cathedral's north side and follow it a few meters towards the back of the church, you'll discover another impressive work a small balcony several meters up the wall next to the window. Though it doesn't contain one today, this bracket used to house a small organ. It was completed, as the painted inscription below it indicates, in 1513, two years before the pulpit, and also features a self-portrait of its architect. 
it was long believed that both the pulpit and the organ bracket were created by the same individual, the man depicted at the base of the bracket, Master Anton Pilgram. Recent research casts some doubt on this theory, however. It's now believed that the man behind the pulpit may have been another stonemason, a contemporary of Pilgram's. It makes sense that their styles would be quite similar because both men studied with Dutch master Nicolaus Gerhardt of Leiden, who's responsible for the massive red marble tomb at the southeast corner of the church. We'll get to that in a bit. But this relief below the organ bracket is almost certainly a self-portrait by Pilgrim himself. And there's a fun anecdote that explains it. According to the story, Master Pilgrim's plans for this organ bracket met with considerable derision among his colleagues. When he told them it would not require any support columns, they were incredulous. They didn't believe the structure would stay on the wall, much less support the weight of an organ without pillars to prop it up. Pilgrim's response was purportedly, it'll stay on that wall if I have to bear it on my own shoulders for eternity. Sure enough, the bracket is still resting on the architect's shoulders to this day. Continuing past Pilgrim's organ bracket, make a left at the stairwell that leads to the crypt. By the way, this is where the catacombs tour meets. Heading into the north transept, you're now standing below the shorter north tower. Several meters up the wall to your left, you'll notice a familiar Christ figure. You saw its copy mounted outside on the rear of the sanctuary. This is the original, known as the Zahnwehergott, or Our Lord of the Toothache. Of course, like most things in Vienna, there's an old story that explains how it got its name. One night, during the days when the area surrounding the church was still a cemetery, a group of three young students were drunkenly stumbling home through the headstones and came across this statue. One of them joked, hey, our savior looks like he's got a pretty bad toothache, and the three laughed all the way home. But in the morning, they all woke with the most excruciating toothaches they'd ever experienced. For two days, they suffered, trying different poultices and remedies, but to no relief. They went to the barber, that's where one went in those days, for everything from tooth pulling to amputations, but the pain persisted. Finally, they returned to the statue, threw themselves before it, and wailed their apologies. Immediately, the pain was gone, as if it had never happened at all, but they'd learned their lesson. Actually, this is a good example of a Gothic-era devotional representation of Christ called the Man of Sorrows. The physical suffering involved in this crucifixion became a popular theme in European depictions of Christ in the late Middle Ages. This is also right around the time that the controversial doctrine of triclavianism was introduced, which asserts that three nails, rather than four, were used to crucify Christ. Believe it or not, most representations of the crucifixion up until this point had used four, one in each hand and one in each foot, with Christ's body in a pretty static T-shape. But with only one nail through both feet, Christ's body is forced into a sort of contraposto S-curve, and the weight of his torso sags down from his attached hands, resulting in a much more visually dynamic shape, one much more evocative of a sense of contortion and physical agony. In many ways, it was this shift in focus from the abstract, all-powerful Christ Pantocrator to the anguished, suffering Christos Dolens that presages the broader advent of humanism in the Renaissance period. Just opposite Our Lord of the Toothache, also tucked under the North Tower, you'll find a small side chapel dedicated to St. Barbara. The dominant feature of this practically empty room is the large, late Gothic wooden cross, a great example of the three-nail depiction of the crucifixion. Near its base, you might be able to make out a small triangular panel. Given by Pope John Paul II to Vienna's Archbishop in 1983, 
This is a metal and glass capsule containing ashes taken from the furnaces of the Auschwitz-Birkenau death camps, where more than 1.1 million people were murdered between 1941 and 1945. At the cross's base, a second capsule contains earth taken from the concentration camp Mauthausen, a forced labor complex responsible for an estimated 320,000 deaths. As Auschwitz was among the first to be liberated in January of 1945, and Mauthausen the last in May of that year, between them they commemorate the millions of people persecuted for their ethnicity, nationality, sexuality, gender identity, religion, political ideals, or physical or cognitive differences, who perished in Nazi camps before the liberation. Heading back out of the transept, look off to your left, and you'll see a meticulously carved and painted wooden winged altarpiece in the north aisle of the sanctuary. This is the Wiener Neustädter Altar, dating from 1447, the oldest surviving double-winged altar in Austria. It's a pentoptic, meaning that it has five moving panels that can be opened and closed to reveal scenes from the life of the Virgin Mary appropriate to the liturgical calendar. Like fresco paintings or stained glass windows, Altars like this one present another medium through which biblical content could be communicated to a congregation that was largely illiterate and couldn't necessarily understand the Latin spoken and read in the Catholic service. This altar was commissioned by Emperor Friedrich III, you'll meet him in a moment, who left his mysterious insignia on practically every building and object he came into contact with over his 78-year life. You'll notice it inscribed twice, even, on the predella, or base, of this altar, right in the middle of the red panel that's decorated with eight small gilt arches. If you've got binoculars on you, you might even be able to make out the date, 1447, and the vowels of the Latin alphabet, A-E-I-O-U. Because Friedrich III never disclosed what this monogram meant, and because he was a notable proponent of proto-sciences like alchemy and astrology, the meaning of this mysterious insignia has been the subject of hefty speculation. Leading theories include that it is an anagram for Jehovah, one of the names of God. The most accepted explanation is that the letters stand for the words of a Latin phrase, Austriae est imperare omni universo, or in German, Alles Erdreich ist Österreich untertan, meaning Austria rules everything in the universe or everything on earth is subordinate to Austria. Wiener Neustadt, the city about a half hour south of Vienna where the altar was crafted and from which it takes its name, was Friedrich's favorite royal residence, and it was the home of this altar until the late 19th century, when it was sold to St. Stephen's. Actually, both of these cathedrals, St. Stephen's and the cathedral in Wiener Neustadt, owe their status today to the actions of Friedrich III. Until 1469, they were still considered parishes belonging to the Diocese of Passau in southern Germany. But in a private audience with Pope Paul II in 1468, Friedrich was able to elicit a papal bull, establishing the two churches as new heads of their own diocese with their own bishops. Being the seat of a bishop is quite literally what distinguishes a church from a cathedral. The term cathedra translates from Latin as a chair with armrests, a symbol of authority adopted by Catholic bishops around the 4th century. As in most cathedrals, you can find Stephansdom's bishop's chair up near the high altar. Set off to the right of the Wiener Neustadtaltar, you'll see a large rectangular marble cenotaph, the symbolic tomb of Rudolf IV and his wife Catherine of Bohemia, who we met earlier in the little antechamber outside the bishop's gate. There are no bodies inside the sepulchre. 
all that was ever placed in it was a finely woven shroud discovered in 1933 and preserved in the nearby diocesan museum. But Rudolph is buried in St. Stephen's, in the Ducal Crypt, the area just beneath the high altar, which you can visit on the catacombs tour. Because he died in Milan, his body had to be preserved in red wine and sewn into the hide of a black ox before making the long trip over the Alps back to Vienna. His widow survived him by more than three decades and remarried, for a time living in Munich as the Margraven of Brandenburg, a title she received through her second husband. Though she returned to Vienna after his death and requested burial with her first husband here, some historians doubt that her body ever made it into the crypt. Working our way south across the choir, we come next to the High Altar, a massive late 17th century addition made of a combination of Polish, Tyrolean, and Styrian black and white marble by two brothers, Johann Jakob Pock, a sculptor and architect, and his brother Tobias, a painter. This shape, reminiscent of a doorway, is called a Porticellis altar, Latin for heaven's gateway. The connotation, of course, is that salvation is only accessible through the sacraments administered here. The painting, executed on a sheet of tin due to fears that a canvas this size wouldn't hold up over time, depicts the stoning of St. Stephen, the cathedral's patron saint. As you've probably noticed by now, there are quite a few saints recognized by the Catholic Church, over 10,000 to date, in fact. And the way you recognize who's who is by the items they're shown with, called attributes. St. Catherine, for instance, always holds a wheel and a sword, since those are the devices used to martyr her. If you opted to purchase a ticket, you can see her in the other transept chapel on the south side of the nave, carved into the ornate drop boss on the ceiling. St. Stephen's attributes are usually three stones and a palm frond, which signifies martyrdom. In the painting, the cherubs are flying down from heaven to give it to him. Sculptures of four other saints adorn the altar at the base of the painting. Sebastian, recognizable for the arrows sticking out of him. Rochus, or Rocco, hoiking up his robes to show you his plague boils. He's the patron saint of dogs, since his life was saved by a dog who brought him bread and licked his wounds until he recovered. Leopold, Austria's patron saint since the 15th century, holding a model of one of his monasteries that he founded. And Florian, patron saint of firefighters, whose name is still used to this day as a radio call sign for fire stations in Austria. Behind the altar, you can still see two original Gothic stained glass windows. The windows of this entire choir area used to be similar to these. But in the Baroque period, around the turn of the 18th century, someone decided that they seemed too dark and replaced them with the pastel glass squares that you see today. You might think this would have better ensured their survival, Sadly, the place where they were stored was hit by a bomb during World War II, and they now exist only in the fragments you see here and in the Wien Museum. On the south side of the nave, to the right of the high altar, as you're facing it, you may be able to see a large reddish-colored marble tomb. This is the final resting place of history's longest reigning Holy Roman Emperor, Friedrich III, who ruled from 1452 until his death in 1493. You've learned a bit about him already. This is the man who commissioned the winged altarpiece on the other side of the choir, had his enigmatic personal motto, A-E-I-O-U, scrawled all over the place, and succeeded in elevating St. Stephen's to a cathedral. He was also the monarch at the time of the Austrian-Hungarian War, during which Vienna fell to King Matthias Corvinus, becoming part of Hungary between 1485 and 1490. While Friedrich's reign is marked by a string of humiliating military defeats, and his sluggishness and decision-making led to the nickname Erzschlafmütze, or Arch Sleepyhead, 
he did ultimately prove successful in expanding and concentrating Habsburg influence, largely by outliving all of his rivals. For example, had Hungarian king Matthias Corvinus not died suddenly and unexpectedly following the Palm Sunday ceremony here in 1490, Vienna may very well have remained under Hungarian control. At a time when the average lifespan was only 33 years, Friedrich managed to survive until the age of 77, at which point he developed what historians believe might have been either gangrene or bed sores resulting from arteriosclerosis and underwent amputation of his left leg. This procedure is considered the most famous and best documented surgery of the Middle Ages by medical historians. While his recovery looked promising, he succumbed only a few months later, though the ultimate cause of his death is still unclear, as some contemporaneous accounts cite complications of the surgery, like blood poisoning, rapid-onset senility, and sepsis, while others suggest that it was the result of violent diarrhea brought on by eating too much melon. Whatever the case, the body had to be brought from Linz to Vienna for burial, a process that took nearly four months due to the Turkish advances into Austrian territory. And when his body, including the severed leg, arrived here for the funeral, it didn't have a finished tomb to be laid in. The red marble sepulcher you see now, executed by Flemish master sculptor Nicholas Gerhard of Leiden, took a total of 46 years to complete. It wasn't finished until 1513, two decades after the emperor's death. So Friedrich had to be interred elsewhere in the interim, and since his later transfer was relatively unceremonious, historians long doubted that the tomb contained his remains at all. But in 1969, researchers actually drilled a hole through the marble in an effort to determine its contents. This hole was again put to use in 2013, when scientists probed both the giant marble sarcophagus and the ceramic coffin inside it, with medical endoscopes and a ground-penetrating radar. Along with gold and red material characteristic of the late 15th century imperial shroud, and funeral insignia, so models of the orb, scepter, crown, sword, and crucifix, they found what they believed to be Friedrich's body, determining that the emperor was, in fact, inside. Turning your attention back to the transept, this time on the south side of the church, look for a roof support pillar with a nearly life-size wooden sculpture of the Virgin Mary standing in front of it. This is called the Dienstboten Madonna, the Servant's Madonna, dating to somewhere between 1280 and 1320. It's a great example of what's called the Schöner or Weicher Stil. That translates as beautiful or soft style and refers to a Gothic-era trend to depict the Virgin Mary as calm and tranquil and very human, with features that look especially lifelike as if she could move at any moment, and a clearly affectionate, especially tender relationship to the Christ child in her arms. Aside from its art historical significance, though, the Dienstboten Madonna has long been particularly cherished by domestic workers. This is because, according to the local legend, this Madonna used to stand in the courtyard of a large house belonging to a noble family, where one day a young maid in service was erroneously accused of stealing her mistress's jewels. As she was about to be arrested for theft and hauled off to a dismal fate, the maid threw herself at the Madonna's feet, begging for mercy. At that moment, the missing jewels were discovered, the maid was exonerated, and her mistress decided to donate the Madonna to the cathedral so other servants could come and pray before it. One more bit of numerology trivia as you make your way back through the church toward the main portal. It's virtually imperceptible, 
but see if you can make out the very, very slight shift in the alignment of the church's axis between the Albertine choir and the nave. Just to be clear, the transept, where the two side chapels form the arms of a cross from an aerial perspective of the church, is basically the dividing line. Everything on the west side of the transept is the nave, where the congregation stands, and everything to the east, the areas with the sanctuary and high altar, is the choir. And if you draw an imaginary line from the portal all the way through the middle aisle of the nave and then do the same thing through the middle of the choir, these two lines are ever so slightly off. In other words, the south wall is about 70 centimeters longer than the north wall. It veers off to the north just a hair, forming a slight left turn in the axis of the church. Called the axknick, or literally axis kink, this phenomenon was only recently discovered by Austrian civil engineer and archaeoastronomer Erwin Reidinger. He determined that, despite initial suspicions that this was a mistake made by the medieval builders, the kink was not only intentional, but similar kinks of the same degree can be found in numerous other medieval churches as well. This reveals a surprising degree of sophistication in medieval construction, as well as a pretty accurate understanding of astronomy in the medieval period. Remarkably, this axis kink reflects the movement of the sun over eight days. While the nave is perfectly aligned with the sunrise on Sunday, December 26th, St. Stephen's Day, in 1137, the year the church was founded, the axis of the choir is aligned with the sunrise on Sunday, January 2nd, 1138. So why the eight-day difference? Imagine playing a western scale on a piano. Let's say you start at middle C, then move through a series of seven pitches to that C's counterpart one octave higher. This idea of an octave is identical to the concept of the liturgical octave that the Catholic Church uses to determine feast days. If you begin on a Sunday, then counting inclusively end on another Sunday, the so-called eighth day, metaphorically speaking, you're starting again, but from a slightly different place. Not surprisingly, the number eight has a corresponding significance in biblical numerology, representing rebirth, renewal, and fulfillment of divine covenant. Both the Torah and the Bible contain multiple references to observing the eighth day as the Sabbath, to consecrations taking place on the eighth day after a week of sacrifices. Circumcision, a token of the covenant with Abraham, is carried out on the eighth day of a boy's life. Eight people survived the flood on Noah's Ark to repopulate the world, and as two times four, four being the number that corresponds with mortality, eight is the symbol of Christ in the New Testament, whose second coming is a central Catholic teaching. By building this eight-day difference into the architecture of the church itself, its builders were quite literally integrating Catholic dogma directly into the structure. And with that, we come to the end of my tour of the interior of Vienna's Stephansdom. Thank you for exploring with me. If you're interested in learning more about the Austrian capital, check out my other themed routes. They all depart from locations nearby and represent a broad range of interests and topics. Of course, I'd love to hear from you through social media, so feel free to reach out with any comments, questions, or episode requests. And if you enjoyed this free content and want to support Gretel Guides, I'm very appreciative of donations in any amount. Even one euro can help cover the cost of keeping my tours free. Thanks for joining me and enjoy Vienna.